Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Webline, a podcast about Spider-Man and his amazing world. Here, we discuss all aspects of our favorite web-slinger in a fun, informal, but informative forum. I am your humble host, the Spidey Librarian, and I hope you are having an excellent day as you find your way to this episode. In today's episode, I will review what is arguably one of the greatest Spider-Man films made, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2. This is a continuation of the Retro Review sub-series, where I review the prodigious backlog of Spider-Man media, including films, shows, and video games. Keep your eyes peeled for more retro reviews as I branch out to my first video game review in upcoming episodes. But before we do a daring dive into our timely topic, it's time to dish on the latest spiderific developments with our knockout news segment, The Bugle News Flash. All right. For our first news item, a digital release of Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse seems to be featuring a significant number of small changes from the theatrical version. What the emphasis seems to be on is that there are some more kind of added visuals to it. Um, there is kind of added, changed, or in some cases deleted dialogue. And, uh, you know, the, the general how, how, how to put this how, how to put this diplomatically uh the general line from the people making the changes is that it doesn't really kind of affect the overall plot of the movie or anything like that they're just kind of like little tiny tweaks improvements what have you and um you know i mean it's it's always fun to kind of sleuth stuff like this and take a look at it and go oh okay they didn't do that in the theaters and stuff like that but on a personal level, I'm, 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 I'm a little troubled by this. I kind of feel like this is, you know how like when a game is released and it's very clearly not finished and they're like, ah, we'll release patches and everything. Like that's kind of what this feels like here. I feel like you should be putting in a finished product by the time you actually get it to the box office. And that clearly didn't happen with Across the Spider-Verse, which you know, it's an animated film. I get that they want to make little variants of it. I, I know that that had been a thing previous in previous weeks when we found that there were like small little differences between uh, the movie. Like one, one version was released in one theater and then another version was released in another. And it would be something silly, like uh, a pose that Lila made in one version and didn't make in another or something like that. Little stuff like that. I still kind of feel like if you're doing things like taking out dialogue, I get a little uncomfortable with that. And so I'm a little troubled by this. I know that a lot of people are just having too much fun trying to find all the differences. And I say more power to them. But in my personal opinion, as someone who watches a lot of movies, plays a lot of video games, and loves me my Spider-Man, I kind of want like a one definitive version of the film and and hopefully there will be that opportunity like if you want to for instance purchase the theatrical release you can if they're only giving you like the new version that has digital alterations to it i i, I have issues with that and hopefully i'm not the only one all right and the only other real piece of 
Spider-Man news for the last couple of weeks. In the comics, they're apparently doing a sequel to Spider-Man Reign. Like, that is apparently in the works at Marvel. And if you haven't read Spider-Man Reign, I'm going to just say it's been probably over a decade since I've read Spider-Man Reign. And it's notorious for featuring... Mary Jane has died in this story because Spider-Man's, um, how to put this, uh, Spider-Man's fluids, uh, were radioactive and killed her. And it's just kind of one of those, like, yikes. That's, that's not only gross and disgusting and probably meme-worthy, but it's, it's dark as well. There's a lot of other dark stuff that goes on in that story, and I would like to elaborate on it, but it's been so long since I've read it that I don't really want to go into it until I get a chance to reread the medium. So um, maybe we'll go into that in a further podcast, but at least for now, Marvel has announced that the probably one of the most notorious Spider-Man stories that they've ever released is getting a sequel. Because that is how Marvel Comics rolls these days. And that's all of the Spidey news for this week. And that brings us to our main segment, which is going to be uh, the second of my retro review subseries. And for this, we are going to be reviewing Spider-Man 2. Now, I'm just going to say that Spider-Man 2, which was released in 2004, is one of those movies that when I think about it, I think about it with a whole... I, I, I view it through rose-colored lenses. I remember going to see it in the theaters. I remember being blown away by it, and I remember seeing it multiple times. I remember my little sister who was with me, my my, my very youngest sister, who was a number of years younger than I was. I, I was. I was in grad school at that point. And she got scared during Doc Ock's scene where the, uh, the doctors are trying to you know, pry the arms off of them, and it, it basically goes all horror movie with the arms and a lot of the medical personnel get killed. I loved Spider-Man so much. I loved the first film. It was great. It was a wonderful introduction to the character through the medium of movies. And the numbers for it reflected it. It had a it it, it made its money back by a lot. Um, people were ecstatic. They loved the kind of throwback to the comic books um, in a lot of the visual design and everything and you had a you had a pretty good smattering of some of the big comic book uh storylines that were adapted and then transferred to the movie they had done all of this extremely well and so when they announced spider-man 2 which was very shortly after the first film made it clear that it was going to make a a big haul at the box office expectations were extraordinarily high. They were high enough. I remember thinking, I, I mean, this, this is a lot to live up to. I, I don't know if it's gonna, I don't know if it's gonna do it. It did it. It totally did it. I was blown away 
by the depth of emotion, the changes that they made to some of the characters and some of the kind of comic plot lines, and the overall very kind of strong support of the themes that come into the movie and that really tend to resonate with me as a viewer and and, and I'm sure plenty of other people. Because again, Spider-Man 2 just made a killing at the box office. And I'm going to go through a few quick numbers uh, just to let you know. One number, June 30th, 2004, that is the release date for Spider-Man 2 into movie theaters. $200 million. That is the figure, that is the budget for Spider-Man 2. It was given a budget of $200 million, which I believe at that time was, wow, a whole lot of money. $789 million. That is Spider-Man 2's worldwide box office. It nearly quadrupled its budget in terms of the money it made back. So very clearly, this was not only a successful film, this was a wildly successful film for the time. $88.2 million. That is the amount of money that Spider-Man 2 made on its opening weekend in the U.S., I know it's not as glitzy as $100 million, but that is still a lot of money to make in just, I think it was like the first, I want to say it was like a five-day weekend, and I don't remember why. I think I think they included the, uh, I think they included the 4th of July along with that because it had released at the end of June, and so I think they tried to just kind of bundle all of that together. I don't remember if that's actually the case, but in any case... $88.2 million for one weekend is pretty impressive, no matter how you, how you square it. 93%. 93% is the Rotten Tomatoes score for Spider-Man 2 as of this afternoon. And I don't think it's changed in quite some time. Now, it has a slightly lower fan score of 82%, so viewers clearly liked the movie, but they may not have liked it as much as critics did. which. That's fine. Everybody is welcome to their opinions. So so those are just a few kind of background details on the movie. Let's talk about the plot very quickly. So Peter Parker is having a whole lot of bad luck in his life at the beginning of this movie. He gets fired from his job as a pizza delivery man. J. Jonah Jameson will not pay him for any pictures he takes except for those of Spider-Man and he just uses those to attack Spider-Man in the press. The money that he makes from the picture that he sells to Jonah of Spider-Man is not enough for him to actually take home because he had gotten an advance earlier from the Bugle. He goes to his birthday party, which he had forgotten about, to find that his two friends, Harry Osborne and Mary Jane Watson, are pretty distant from him, and are basically just just kind of there. They, they, they don't have much to say to him. He also sees that his Aunt May is getting evicted. We're talking the Parker luck in full swing here. And it's mostly due to Peter's obligations as, as Spider-Man. He sees a situation going south, and he has to help. 
and it makes him late for a whole lot of other things, and it just causes additional stress. He's trying to work through it, and one of his projects is a paper that he's writing on Dr. Otto Octavius. Harry, who is the head of Oscorp's special projects division, actually is working with Octavius and gets those two together in spite of his disappointment with Peter over why he won't tell him who Spider-Man is, as, at least in Harry's mind, Spider-Man killed his father. So, there's that tension, but they're still friends, and he's willing to do this favor for him. Octavius is not only a good man, but he, he turns out to be like a mentor to Peter. They form an almost instant rapport because they're both very intelligent, and I think Octavius just finds a way to relate to Peter because he knows that Peter is, for one, he's, he's, he's in love with a girl that he won't talk about, and Octavius has been lucky in love, and so he and his wife Rosie have Peter over for a meal, and they talk to him and just kind of encourage him. Uh, he, he agrees to come to a demonstration later, and in the meantime, more stress just continues to pile up because of his obligations with Spider-Man. He's late to Mary Jane's play. He is not able to attend as a result. We won't even talk about Bruce Campbell's Usher, who was more than a little obnoxious. But basically, he continues to feel stress and obligation, and it just keeps eating at him. The next day at the presentation, Octavius starts to do his, uh, his, his, I, I know what he called it. It, it. It's basically a mini sun. It's a, it's a, it's a source of, it's a fusion source of energy. The power of the sun in the palm of my hand. That was the quote that he used. And I'm sure we all are familiar with that quote now. So the experiment goes badly and the arms to which Doc Ock has created for the purpose of doing this experiment, basically become fused to his spine. His wife, Rosie, is unfortunately killed, and Peter has to turn into Spider-Man, pull the plug on things. He saves Harry's life, but Harry basically says, this doesn't change anything between us. He gets away and basically kind of realizes that his life as Spider-Man may have made some differences to others, but he doesn't see that at the time. He just sees the trouble that Spider-Man has been causing him, Peter. And so he loses control of his powers, often at the worst possible times, and basically falls mid-web swing. Goes to the doctor, basically has to tell the doctor that he's Spider-Man, but it's his friend, it's, it's his friend's dreams kind of thing. Uh, and it, it, in, a, in a very amusing scene, Doc Ock, who, you know, when the, when the doctors try to remove uh, Octavius's arms, Doc Ock basically emerges after kind of killing them in a, I don't want to say a blind rage, but he, he, he was unconscious and I feel like the arms were in control most of that time. He sees what he's done. He's like, no, you know, he gives the, he gives the big no screen that you see in Star Wars all the time. And essentially, he decides to become a villain. He wants to recreate his experiment. He thinks that he 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 was gonna make it work. And if Spider-Man hadn't gotten in the way, he would be, he would have been able to finish his work. So he sets up his base in the in the 
basically the the wrecked dock from the previous attempt and start starts going around trying to raise capital and uh starts robbing banks at the time peter and his aunt may are there and a fight ensues between spider-man and doc ock peter basically kind of realizes that this guy is not someone to just brush off and manages to save his aunt may after she helps out during the battle there's a, a continued back and forth between Peter trying to be there for his friends. Um, and then a, a scene where Peter decides, I'm not going to be Spider-Man anymore. I'm just going to stop and I'm going to try to live my life. And as his, as he gets better at his life, you know, he, he makes it to class. He does his homework. He's there for his friends. He, he attends Mary Jane's play. He notices that People are still suffering without Spider-Man around, and he has to kind of look at some bad situations and then willfully kind of turn a blind eye to it. And that begins to eat at him. And he can't decide what he wants to do. Does he want to be Spider-Man or doesn't he? After he tells his aunt about why he thinks it's his fault that Ben died, he returns later and uh, sees her packing. She's been facing eviction and has just decided she's going to move into a smaller apartment and sell the house. She basically convinces Peter in a way that suggests that she may know that he's Spider-Man, and basically says, you know, she believes there's a hero in all of us, and that people need heroes. So after a few more tries, Peter gets his powers back, and Octavius, in the meantime, has gone to Harry, who doesn't want anything to do with him anymore because of the disaster during his demonstration, and he agrees to help out Octavius. He'll get him the tritium that he needs for his experiment if Doc Ock can bring him Spider-Man. So Doc Ock basically finds Peter Parker when he is meeting with MJ, trying to convince her that he actually can't be there for her now and that, you know, he he's not telling her this, but he's, he has to still be Spider-Man and therefore can't be there for her anymore. And they're about to kiss. MJ, who is engaged, I might add at this point, basically tells him to kiss her. And I think she's trying to see if he kisses like Spider-Man because Spider-Man kissed her in the previous movie. And Octavius disrupts it. He grabs MJ and tells Peter, tell Spider-Man to meet me here or this girl's going to die. Spider-Man shows up. They fight. And uh, what follows is one of the best subway fights I have ever seen between Spider-Man and one of his villains. It was a it's a great fight. And Doc Ock is smart. He uses his setting. He uses the uh, terrain as it is against Spider-Man and causes the uh, brakes on the subway train to just not work. And they're headed towards a dive into the, I believe, the Hudson River. Uh, Spider-Man manages to throw out a bunch of webs. He manages to save. I mean, we're all familiar with this scene, right? Where he's uh, he's kind of splayed out. He's trying to hold his webs and manages to keep the subway from falling into the river. And just as he is about to keel over from pure exhaustion, the citizens of New York grab him. They pull him into the subway train. He doesn't have his mask on by this point, so they can all see who he is, and they treat him so very tenderly. This is one of the most beautiful scenes 
that I think I've ever seen in a superhero film, just the way that they treat him. And um, essentially, after they basically tell him, hey, you're okay, we appreciate what you did for us, here's your mask back, one of the kids somehow got a hold of the mask. And essentially, you know, they're, they're like, you know, you're, you're safe here. Doc Ock shows up, and after the New Yorkers all make a show of saying, you got to go through me to get, you got to go through me to get to him, uh, he shoves them all aside, grabs Spider-Man, and basically brings him to Harry. Harry's about to pull a knife out and stab Spider-Man when he takes off uh, Spider-Man's mask and sees that it's Peter and drops the dagger immediately. Peter bursts out of the the bonds that he was in and tells Harry, hey, he's got MJ. I need you to tell me where he is. And after realizing that Peter is the one that killed his father, Harry basically tells him where Ock is in the in the in the broken down pier from earlier. And so he goes there, and after actually a fairly brief scuffle, he manages to save MJ and he manages to get through to Octavius and basically remind him of who he is. He unmasks to him and basically says, you know, hey, you told me that intelligence was a gift, not a privilege, and that we have to use it for the benefit of others. He manages to convince Octavius to essentially go and uh, drown the reactor so that it will not basically explode like a small sun and, and basically obliterate the, the city and, and probably even more than that. Peter goes and rescues MJ and basically explains to her why they can't be together and goes off and kind of does his own thing. And MJ, who is getting married, like, the next day, <laughs> she's getting married at some point afterwards, decides to leave her groom at the altar, who is J. Jonah Jameson's son, by the way, and runs to Peter in a wedding dress and basically tells her that she wants to be with him. And after they kiss and affirm that, you know, they're going to give a relationship a shot, Peter swings off to go help the police after MJ tells him, go get him, tiger. And then the scene closes, the movie closes on Spider-Man uh, chasing after the cops to see what commotion he can help them with. And the camera finally ends on MJ, who looks like she is not entirely certain she's going to be happy with the choice that she made. And then it cuts to the credits. That was probably a very deta overly detailed plot summary, but it was what came to the Spidey Librarian's mind as I talked about this plot summary. Again, it's a very good plot. It's a very good story. And we're going to go a little bit more into the kind of the themes and the characters and some of the memorable scenes as we progress. And actually, we are moving into the character analysis. And I want to talk a little bit about Spider-Man and Peter Parker here. Now, Tobey Maguire, of course, is famous for this role, and he does it well. I don't think I have terribly much to say about his portrayal of Spider-Man and Peter Parker than I said in the previous Retro Review episode where I reviewed the first Spider-Man film. Peter makes a very good, or I'm sorry, Tobey Maguire makes a very good Peter Parker. He is really good at kind of portraying the sensitive, kind of stricken, like punch me, do I not bleed kind of person. 
And his Spider-Man is serviceable. I like his Spider-Man just fine. Uh, like I said previously, quips are really not a strong suit. And to be fair, there are not many moments that appear in the script that really give Spider-Man an opportunity for quipping. And the ones that Maguire gets, they're like, Neh. I kind of feel like he just read them to get through the line. I wasn't that impressed with Spider-Man's quip factor. Mary Jane Watson, played by Kirsten Dunst, I, I, I still kind of wonder what they were going for with this iteration of Mary Jane. Kirsten Dunst is a very pretty uh, actress, and essentially, like, I, I, Kirsten Dunst is not someone that I would have chosen to play Mary Jane back then. And it has nothing to do with the fact that of her hair color or anything like that. Like she's, I don't believe she's a natural redhead. And I think things like that are kind of besides the point. But I feel like her portrayal of MJ just was not as, I feel like MJ is a character who has kind of a, a lot of, what's, what's the word? Vivaciousness? We'll, we'll go with that. And I just don't feel like that was Kirsten Dunst in, in, in this movie or the previous one. She is a damsel in distress. And at times I feel like she's pretty manipulative. I feel like she, she is engaged. I believe this entire movie up until like the very, very last few minutes when she decides to leave John Jameson at the altar and be with Peter. And during that time, she is like kind of going out on, on, dates. I'm using air quotes here for those of you that are listening. She goes out on little dates with Peter. She tries to get him to kiss her. I feel like she kind of plays on the fact that she's engaged to kind of emotionally manipulate him into doing or saying things that she wants. I get that she has her own motivations for what she does. I just don't know how honorable those are. It feels very out of character for the MJ that I know from the comics and from some of the the animated series, and, and certainly from the video games. I'm not a big fan of this character, and I don't know if Kirsten Dunst is actually trying to play her that way, and if Sam Raimi wanted her to play her that way, or if there just wasn't much care given to MJ. I will not lie, I kind of could have done without MJ in this movie. I know that we need her because Peter needs someone to pine after. I just really wish that they had done more with the character. Harry Osborne, played by James Franco, is a pretty interesting character in this film because he's trying to, he's, he's very much trying to get over the death of his father. And he clearly has it out for Spider-Man, so he's not going to let that go. But in the meantime, he's he's kind of dived into special projects. He's kind of formed this uh, rapport with Otto Octavius. He's trying to put Oscorp on the map in a big way. He, he wants to outdo his father. He wants to avenge his father. Everything that Harry does is in relation to his father. And I feel like James Franco, like he did in the previous film, does an excellent job of playing the poor little rich boy who has been deprived of things and is now going to use his means to get the ends that he wants. 
even though he's still friendly with Peter, there's definitely a disappointment there. And of course, at the end, you can see like the the very genuine shock and hurt on Harry's face as he realizes that Peter is indeed Spider-Man, which means that Peter must have killed his father. And of course, they're putting all that aside for the third film, but it definitely is very well portrayed by Franco, and I think he does an excellent job. Now, of course, the showcase for these films is the villain, and in Alfred Molina's Doc Ock, I love this iteration of Dr. Octopus. It was stupendous. And the thing about this iteration of Doc Ock is that Alfred Molina wanted to portray this character because he liked Doc Ock's kind of vicious sense of humor with regard to Spider-Man. And that actually does come out a couple of times. But this Doc Ock is fundamentally different from the Otto Octavius from the Marvel comics. In the Marvel comics, Otto Octavius is not a good person. He's always been abrasive, arrogant, highly, highly intelligent, and uh, just kind of an emotional, I don't want to say an emotional cripple, but he is a man that is just not someone who gets along with people. And very much uh, when, when he takes a turn for the villainous, it's just like an enhancement of that. In this film, Otto Octavius is a good man. He is a man of science. I mean, you know, same as the, the guy from the comics. But he is also a man who believes in the power of love. He has a great life. He is, he's got a very lucrative deal going with Oscorp. And he's trying to use his prodigious intellect for the betterment of mankind. He's trying to create a source of power and energy that is not only clean, but that could basically be for anyone and everyone. He is a very noble person at the beginning. And even though he kind of brushes Peter off at first, he eventually takes him in. He has him over for dinner. And he is just amazed at how brilliant this boy is. And I love his quote when he uh, when he talks about Connors. He's like, Connor says you're brilliant, but lazy, you know, and basically kind of takes it upon himself to educate Peter and just say, you know, intelligence isn't a gift. It is it is or no, it isn't a privilege. I'm sorry. He, he takes it upon himself to tell Peter that intelligence is not a privilege. It is a gift, and you have an obligation to use that gift for the betterment of others. And he is very much, in a lot of ways, the he, he's kind of the living example of with great power comes great responsibility. And he's one of those examples that I, uh, you know, there's a part of me, I'm sorry, there was a part of me, that part doesn't really exist anymore. When I first saw this movie, and I'm like, he is very different from the comics. You know, Doc Ock from the comics is just, he's always been a mean person. You cannot relate to him. He's a, he's arrogant. He's not someone who is nice. This Octavius, maybe he is arrogant, but he is also reflective. He is introspective. 
He is compassionate and he is a man who got lucky in love and knows how lucky that he got. He is fundamentally different from Octavius in the comics. And there was a part of me at first that was like, this is, why is he so different from the comics? I'm not sure I like this. Five minutes in, I was completely convinced. I was like, okay, I like this guy. He's great. And I love this version of Dr. Octopus. I think that he's going to be great. Now, of course, he gets it all pulled away from him during the demonstration. The disaster happens. Um, the arms get fused to him. His wife gets killed and his work is just in shambles. He has basically lost everything. Not to mention the arms, which are operated by an artificial intelligence, are basically taking over his higher brain functions and encouraging him to finish the experiment. And he's like, you know, I should do that. I should make my mark on the world, and I'm, damn it, I'm going to. So this Doc Ock is a very tragic, much more tragic version of the comic books character. And again, they are fundamentally different. Alfred Molina was just, he was pitch perfect as Doc Ock. And I think he deserves a lot of praise for his acting abilities in that role. We're going to move on to Aunt May, played by Rosemary Harris. Now, the interesting thing about Aunt May to me is that she is, um, She's always kind of been Peter's, like, you know, the, the person that he has an obligation to. He wants to make sure that she's all right. She's, she's the woman who raised him. She's kind of a, she's, she's basically his mom in a lot of ways. And what I like about her is that there is more uh, kind of layer added on to her. I really felt that her telling Peter that Ben's death was her fault was a really interesting kind of stepping stone. And then her forgiving Peter for telling her about his role in Ben's death was just amazing. Um, you also get to see Aunt May have some action scenes in this movie. I mean, she helps Spider-Man fight Doc Ock, which was brilliant. I, I thought that was excellent and um, made me kind of love the character even more. I really do want to talk about what Aunt May says to Peter during the kind of unpacking scene near the end of the movie, and we'll get to that later in this section. Finally, I want to talk about another cast member that I just I always look forward to him in a Spider-Man movie, and that, of course, is going to be J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson. And he's not really considered a main cast member. Uh, Ock's wife is actually considered a main cast member, but she was in two scenes. J. Jonah Jameson is always going to be a thorn in Spider-Man's side in some way, shape, or form. Even in the comics right now where he's on Spider-Man's side, he tends to screw things up more than he ends up helping, and it's kind of hilarious to watch. Anyways, J.K. Simmons delivers just... I, I keep using the word amazing. He delivers a stupendous, spectacular, incredible J. Jonah Jameson. He has that kind of frenetic energy and just that comedic timing that just makes him so memorable in that role, you know? And, uh, you know, I, I understood why they brought him back to Spider-Man Far From Home years and years after he had played 
Jonah in the in the Maguire and Raimi films. He I don't feel like there's anyone else, at least not right now, who who can really play that role. Like this is just kind of the role you give to J.K. Simmons. Another voice actor for Jonah in Marvel's Spider-Man is pretty awesome, too. He's fun. But in terms of acting, I mean, we all just love this guy so much. He he is he is ridiculous. He is just he's he's hypocritical. Uh, he's a penny pincher, and it all just works in in comedic fashion for this character. A lot of other notable guest appearances in this movie, and some of them just I remember they blew my mind when I first saw the saw them in theaters. And even now, like some of them really I'm just like, wow, that per like that person is famous today, like even more famous. So like and I'm talking about Elizabeth Banks as Betty Brandt. Uh, Elizabeth Banks, she was in the Hunger Games movies. She's also been in Brightburn. And Betty Brant has maybe like three minutes of screen time. She's she's not there for very long, if even that. Um, but she is the pretty receptionist that works in J. Jonah Jameson's office. And in the comics, Peter actually does have like, she's like his first kind of girlfriend. Um, it doesn't really last for very long, but I like that they put her there. And I, you know, I, I see that character and I'm like, that's Elizabeth Banks. I know her. That's awesome. Another awesome kind of surprise appearance was, of course, Willem Dafoe reappearing as, I'm not even going to say Norman Osborn. If you watch my review of the first Spider-Man movie, uh, you know how I feel about this. I'm just going to say as the goblin playing Norman Osborn, because he's there to kind of egg on Harry and be like, avenge me, and get Harry to discover the Green Goblin arsenal. So that was, I remember seeing that in the theaters and just going, oh my God, Willem Dafoe is back, even if it's just for a cameo. I was like, dang, I love it. So uh, Donna Murphy plays Rosie, uh, Otto's wife. I'm just going to call her Rosie Octavius because, you know, that's just my assumption at this point. Um, And she is very... She's very memorable for like the two scenes that she's in where she talks about, you know, meeting Otto and how lucky uh, they were to have found each other. And then like in the next scene, she gets killed off. It is obviously a heartbreaking moment for Otto. And um, and that's all we really see of her. I was just really surprised that she was actually listed as part of like the it was like the top six cast members she was one of them and you know i, I would have put jk simmons in there before her but that's just me they don't pay me to make these kinds of decisions they don't pay me to think about it i get it it's fine <laughs> anyways let's see daniel gillies plays john jameson who is unfortunately very underused and he's not there for much more purpose than to serve as kind of mj's obligation the guy she's getting married to, the person who is just an obstacle, you know, and he's not even a bad guy. In the very few scenes that he gets, he actually tries to convince MJ to invite Peter to their wedding. And MJ's like, nah, he's just a jerk, you know. So, you know, he's just this poor guy who, by all accounts that we see in the movie, is just 
he, he's just kind of shat upon by by MJ and, and by circumstance. I, I would argue just as much as Peter in a lot of ways, even though he has it better than Peter throughout most of the movie. Uh, Jonah's wife is actually played by Christine Estabrook. I remember she's kind of fun to watch because they're very clearly trying to do like some social climbing and there is a little bit of wackiness that ensues as a result. And so I remembered her. I'm not going to call her Marla Jameson because they don't credit her as Marla Jameson. And I kind of, I mean, from what little I know of Marla Jameson from the comics, she is not a silly person like Jonah's wife in the movie was. I could be wrong, but at least for now, I'm going to go with that is not Marla Jameson. That is just Jonah's wife, whoever that may be. Do we have any Cobra Kai fans here? I really want to know because if I, I was, my mind was blown as I was going over the cast list while I was researching this movie. Yeah, um, Peyton List is in this movie. If you don't know who Peyton List is, watch Cobra Kai from, I think, like season two onward. Peyton List is, uh, oh God, I can't remember her name. The Queen Cobra. Um, the, ah, the rival to Daniel's daughter. Um, she's, she's one of, she, she's one of the Cobra Kai, um, like mains, basically. And she's a really interesting character, too. And it was just really surprising. She and her brother, Spencer List, this is their film debut. They are the two little kids that Spider-Man rescues from playing in the street, like a truck is about to run them over and he rescues them and he says, no more playing in the street, kids. And you remember like these two little adorable blonde kids, they look up at Spider-Man and they both go, yes, Mr. Spider-Man. That's Peyton List. That's the Queen Cobra from Cobra Kai right now. I'm just like, I, I was, my mind was blown when I found that out. I was like, oh my God, that is awesome. And I love discovering stuff like that. And then finally, one of the first people, maybe the first person in the movie that Peter speaks to is uh, Mr. Aziz, the the pizza uh, owner who, who who fires him after a few minutes. Uh, that's Asif Manvi, and if you don't know who he is, uh, go back and watch The Daily Show when Jon Stewart was was running it. Asif Manvi, what, he's he's a comedian, and he is a, like one of the things that I remember him from was that show where he just does a whole lot of kind of like expose pieces and has a lot of really good, fairly sarcastic commentary. Uh, excellent person. And I remember looking at him several times in the years that I've watched the movie since then. I'm like, who is he? I know him. He looks familiar. That's Asif Manvi, and I just did not catch it until recently. So excellent cast, excellent characters, and really they all kind of work together. You know, Peter is the hero. I feel like in terms of analyzing a lot of these characters, you know, I think Octavius is kind of the big one here. He's the living indicator of, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And then after tragedy just kind of rips his entire life away and he's kind of being guided by his artificial arms, he's just a very tragic character whose fall is even more, you know, tragic simply because um, he he doesn't seem to he doesn't seem to understand that he has turned into uh, the very inverse of what he used to be. Um, 
And so, yeah, lots of excellent uh, characters, lots of excellent uh, casting decisions made in this movie. Again, I mean, this, this, I, I have a lot of good things to say about this Spider-Man film. Let's talk about some of the themes and messages that are that, that kind of permeate Spider-Man 2. Like, especially from the beginning, you've just got the the message of trying to persevere in the face of a life that just seems to want to beat you down like all the time. When we meet Peter at the beginning of this movie, that is all that is happening to him. He is running late because he was doing something as Spider-Man. He is late to de delivering the pizzas, you know, even though he, he webbed up and tried to make it when he, when, you know, when he couldn't. He tries to sell Jonah pictures that, that aren't of Spider-Man, and Jonah doesn't want them. Jonah doesn't care about Peter's financial issues. Jonah wants pictures of Spider-Man so that he can attack him in the pages of the Daily Bugle. And Peter just, oh, fine, here, take it. You know, it's, it's, you can see the, the look of defeat on Peter's face as he hands him that photo. Um, he manages to, you know, negotiate himself a higher payout than Jonah would have given him, but that payout doesn't even cover the amount that he had gotten from Betty's advance previously. So he doesn't get any money from the photo anyways. You know, he, he just keeps running into one bad thing after the other. He goes to his Aunt May's and finds a birthday party waiting for him that he had forgotten about. And you can see that MJ and Harry are very distant from him. Uh, Harry is disappointed that, you know, Peter won't tell him who Spider-Man is and that, you know, Peter keeps making money off of money off of Spider-Man. Um, he wants to know who he is because, you know, Spider-Man killed his father in his in his mind. You know, he sees that Aunt May is on the precipice of eviction because she can't pay her bills and he is he just can't seem to catch a break you know he nothing he does turns out well for him i really felt bad for peter during the first part of this movie because i mean he is just i mean he he drops his books while he's on campus he's trying to pick things up and people are stepping on his books and hitting him with backpacks and it's just like my god this poor guy it nothing seems to break well for him and Peter continues to try to persevere. He continues to try to be who he is and for the most part succeeds. But he also sees that, you know, being Spider-Man has caused a lot of stress in his life and he is starting to resent it. And it's easy to understand why. And that's what leads to him eventually abandoning the costume and trying to just be Peter Parker, which he does really well. But then when he sees that other people suffer because he, he he uh, has the ability to help them and doesn't, then he realizes, you know, I'm not living up to my responsibility, even though I have this power. It's a really interesting study of that. And I just feel like at the beginning, just kind of life beating Peter down is kind of the epitome of the Parker luck. And so I, I, I like that. I feel like it's a good theme to kind of set things up and really get to the heart of why Peter does what he does in this movie. Uh, another theme that I feel is really relevant was embodied in the phrase, intelligence is a gift, not a privilege. You know, it's, it's a variation on with great power comes res great responsibility. You know, it's using your, your, your vast intellect, your, your, your 
your power, if you will, to help others. That's the responsibility aspect of it. And it's kind of, you know, hinted at uh, with Kurt Connors telling him that. And then, of course, when Peter meets Otto Octavius, you know, he basically throws that quote at him and says, you know, yeah, you, you need to you need to kind of take this gift that you've been given and make sure that you are using it to the best of your ability in the service of others. And I think that's a very, it's it's a very kind of striking observation that I kind of think throws the, you know, great power, great responsibility line. Like it's, it's an, it's another good way of throwing it into stark contrast and showing that, you know, to use your power responsibly, basically. Another theme that I thought was really good was also embodied, I think, in something that Aunt May said to Peter when she talks about the idea that sometimes in order to do what's right, we have to give up the things we want, even our dreams. And that is a situation that I feel like we can all relate to. Uh, life is not easy. We all have plans with, uh, you know, we all have plans for our lives. We have a vision of how we see our life turning out, what we want it to be. And in the meantime, life is happening to us. People get sick with cancer. We fall into debt for a number of reasons. We get into car accidents. We take jobs that maybe we, you know, that we don't enjoy or that that don't lead where we think they will lead. And so you have to make some decisions based on where you are at that certain point in your life. Sometimes that means giving up on things that you may have wanted in order to do the right thing. It's not always easy. And yet again, another permutation of the idea that with great power, there must also come great responsibility. And I feel like Peter gives up, like, in order to remain Spider-Man, in order to do this responsible thing that, that he sees as the responsible thing to help others, you know, he makes the decision that MJ can't be a part of his life in that case because he doesn't want to endanger her. It's a very noble decision, and it's a very—I I would also say it's a fairly misguided decision, too, um, because there is the idea that, you know, like, you know— g- if if you care about someone enough, you you give them all the information that you can and you let them make those decisions and you trust that they have the judgment to decide that. Again, I get it. Superhero, secret identity. You want to keep that secret and only reveal it when you have to. I feel like in Peter's case, MJ is one of those have tos, though. It's not perfect, but it is there. I think a final theme that really doesn't get brought up until the very end of the movie is the idea of the sins of the father haunting the father's children. And and of course, we're talking about Norman Osborn and Harry Osborn here. Uh, clearly, Harry is still fairly haunted by his dad's death. He will not let it go. He wants revenge on Spider-Man. And he just, you know, he he also wants to try to beat his father in certain ways too. He wants to, he wants to do this really lucrative project with Otto Octavius and elevate Oscorp to a level that even his dad wouldn't have been able to do. And of course that doesn't happen. But I mean, 
This, of course, is exemplified in Willem Dafoe's Norman, you know, goblin playing Norman Osborn uh, appearance, very brief appearance, but a very powerful appearance. And he asks, he, he asks Harry to avenge him. And it's, it's interesting to me because I feel like in some ways the goblin represents kind of a, like, like a, like a mental health struggle that Norman went through. And the fact that it shows up for Harry, who has not by this point taken the goblin serum, kind of like points to a possible, like a genetic predisposition for whatever mental illness Norman might have had that enabled the goblin to come out and everything. I mean, you can also just look at it as like the goblin, again, being his own and being its own entity and needing to, you know, strike like this, this force of chaos and evil needing to strike back at Spider-Man and vengeance and then just using Harry for it. But I really do feel like when this thing appears to Harry, you know, it's almost kind of like, has the father passed an illness down to the son? And it's a very kind of sobering thing to consider when you think about those two characters and how they relate to one another, uh, Norman and Harry. So it's, a uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a very kind of haunting, uh, theme that I think will of course come into fruition in, in Spider-Man three, but that gets very kind of heavily, like lightly hinted at kind of throughout the, the, uh, the movie's narrative and then just kind of gets driven home with a hammer in, uh, you know, kind of in the end game of the, of the film. I, and I think with that, we're going to go ahead and move on to just source material comparisons. Really, I mean, there are a couple of comic book storylines that this pulls from. I would say the biggest one would be Spider-Man No More. And Spider-Man No More is just kind of the whole subplot of Peter deciding, I don't want to be Spider-Man anymore. And Peter does that, but essentially comes back pretty quickly from it. Now, if memory serves... Peter abandons his Spider-Man role, I think, in Spider-Man number 50, Amazing Spider-Man number 50. And by the end of the comic, he's back to being Spider-Man. So the shortness of that is definitely, that's not a, a real deviation from the comics. However, there are other kind of lighter elements. You can see a little bit of If This Be My Destiny, particularly in the imagery of Peter kind of like holding up the debris in this kind of area that's, uh, you know, that has water uh, kind of as, as, a, as a, po a potential obstacle uh, and a potentially life-threatening obstacle. Uh, Mary Jane wasn't in that scene during the comics. And so, but, but like definitely that kind of setup is there. Uh, Octavius, I believe, was also kind of the reason for Peter having to have, have the debris on him and you know, being in danger of getting flooded. So I, I think that's a, um, you know, I, I think it's a worthwhile thing to pull from. But again, it's a very brief one. And then, I mean, really, I, I feel like the other comparison to the comics is essentially how different Octavius is from the source material in terms of like Otto Octavius, Doc Ock is someone who, at least through his initial appearances, was really like, yeah, they gave him an origin story as to how he got the arms and everything, but they didn't really go beyond that. Like, he was just this arrogant scientist that nobody liked, 
That's why they called him Dr. Octopus, because the arms helped them work with nuclear materials at a safe distance. And then he has his accident. They really don't go beyond that. And he didn't really get an origin story like that until like the 90s. And I actually have the comic where they talk about that. Um, and it's a good comic. And I could see Sam Raimi reading that comic and going, we're going to, you know, like, I, I don't think I don't think he pulled directly from that story. But I could see him reading that comic and going, yeah, we could make this character sympathetic. We could make him even more sympathetic and then and then doing that. Um, and again, this is an iteration that works. I feel like they're, they, they scrapped a large part of Ock's personality from the comics and then just kind of like made a new one for him. And it works. And I think that this, this Doc Ock w- was somebody that the creators of the Marvel Spider-Man game from 2018, like w- when they were working on Doc Ock for that game, they almost certainly reference this character in terms of trying to make him someone who is not just a villain, but someone who is extremely sympathetic and someone who at a certain point you actually want to root for. And, um, you know, th- this is it. This is, this was the basis for that. You know, you can find other examples, earlier examples in the comics, um, but, you know, it's it's just kind of one of those, like, this, this is the big one right here. Alfred Molina does an excellent job. And I think that overall, like, this this is just um, one of the better portrayals of Octavius that I have ever seen and probably will ever see for some time. Now, I want to talk a cu- about a couple of noteworthy scenes that I just really liked from this movie and that hopefully you guys did, too. First of all... <laughs> that opening that opening to the movie peter having all this bad luck he cannot make anything good happen no matter how hard he tries and we all have heard about the notorious parker luck in the spider-man comics the spider-man cartoons and and now in the movies i mean this is the parker luck in full swing he's doing the absolute best he can he's trying to balance more than one life and he can't do it and it's causing him so much stress. And you can see him kind of slowly just being like, I'm really starting to resent this, you know? And, um, of course, he goes to the doctor. He, you know, the doctor says, hey, it's probably stress. Your, uh, your friend who's dreaming about Spider-Man probably needs to decide what he needs to do. And if it's too much, you can always quit. And he's like, I, I can quit? You know, and and uh, and essentially, essentially, that is what we get from from Peter for a little while. He quits and 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 everything. But but like that initial, I don't know, like what twenty minutes or so, where Peter is just trying. You know, I'm thinking of the scene on campus where he drops his books and he's trying to pick them up, and people just keep walking by. They they're like hitting him with their backpacks. They're stepping on his books they're not no one is helping him and peter's just like i am a punching bag for life and i kind of hate it i'm like god's chew toy or something or faith's chew toy or however you want to see it just that those initial like collection of scenes that just opening 20 minutes or so is just like it really kind of makes you sympathize for peter and just be like man oh man i i just i i don't 
I don't know how he gets through the week. Another scene that I really enjoyed was Peter and Otto getting to know each other. Otto, of course, like at first is like, I don't really have the time to help with your paper. And then Harry's like, mm-hmm, Otto. And he's like, well, but, you know, Oscorp's paying the bills, so I guess I'll help out. And once they get over that hump and Otto actually gets to know Peter, you really see a nice rapport building between the two, you know? He he kind of takes Peter under his wing in a way that he he did not have to, you know? He could have just done the interview, given given him the facts and said, okay, now go write your paper. And he's like, you know, he he's like, you know, Kurt Connors told me about you. We're, he's, he's a friend of mine. And, uh, you know, he says that you're brilliant, but that you're lazy and you need to, you need to work on that. You know, you're never going to have the kind of life that is worth noting until you get through that and start realizing how you can, you can help other people and, and actually make it your, your job to do that. And so Peter clearly kind of latches onto this and it's just, it's, it's just very kind of heartwarming. The, you know, the, the relationship that seems to be forming between not only these two, but also Rosie, you know, Rosie who sees that her husband is mentoring this young man and is just kind of like, you know, like, yeah, no, there, there are things that, you know, she could probably teach him too, you know? And, and so, you know, she's, she's very warm to Peter and very kind of like, yeah, you know, come to the demonstration tomorrow. You'll see for yourself, you know? And, and Otto is just very kind of like, yeah, no, absolutely. Like, I, I like you, you know, you, you have unrealized potential and I want to help you realize that potential. And I just really love that about that iteration of Doc Ock. And, and it really was just, you know, well, Octavius, not Doc Ock. And speaking of Doc Ock, I think it's the first really big fight between Ock and Spidey at the bank. He takes Aunt May and tries to use her as a hostage. And it's just really funny to me because she gets put in some very dangerous situations. Uh, Spider-Man tries to help her. He's only semi-successful. I mean, he eventually succeeds and rescues her. But there are a few times where it's like, ah, I can't quite help you, you know, which just shows how big a threat Octavius actually is. And the thing is, like, what I like about that fight is mostly Aunt May helping. Like, when uh, Spidey is about to, like, kind of slingshot himself towards Ock, and Ock pulls out the little kind of bladed, um, you know, the blade apparatus on his arm. (laughs) And Aunt May sees it, and she's like, shame on you. And then she, like, smacks him with her, like, cane, like, right as he's about to strike Spidey. And I just, I love that. I, I I love that scene. I love that the I love that the old lady gets gets a smack in on the villain and actually prevents Spider Man from getting impaled, and that was uh, you know that was great. I, I loved it when they get away from him and Peter basically says to his Aunt May as Spider Man, he's like, "We really showed him, didn't we?" And she's like, "What do you mean we?" <laughs> You know, and it's just it's it's one of those moments in the movie where I'm just like, that is just a great moment for for that character and that whole situation, you know, and and especially when she says, oh, have I been wrong about you? I mean, you know, it's just kind of like I like also that she's coming around to that. I feel like the scene where Aunt May is packing is a really significant scene. 
And it's written in a way that leaves open the possibility that Aunt May might already know who Peter, that Peter is Spider-Man. And I, I really like that idea. I remember watching that scene when it was in theaters and just going, wait, does she, does she know? Like, is she telling him to go back to being Spider-Man without telling him to go back to being Spider-Man? I, I really, I, I really like the, the ambiguity of that scene. I really like the ambiguity of that scene because I, 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 there have been so many scenes where Aunt May finds out that Peter Parker is Spider-Man and especially like there have been a, there, there's been at least a couple of them in the comics. There have been, there, there, there's the Aunt May reveal in the Tom, the first Tom Holland movie. Um, and there are always kind of varying reactions to it. I like the ambiguity here where you're just kind of left wondering, does she know? And I don't remember if they hint at it again in the third movie. I, I don't think they do. But I like the idea that, you know, that she that she knows a secret and while she might not approve, like she sees the she sees the nobility in it. She she even might see the obligation in it and understand that to want Peter to never be Spider-Man and never help others. There's a certain amount of selfishness in that. I, I really like that idea. And, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if Sam Raimi has ever said for certain, you know, that she knows or that she doesn't. And again, I think the ambiguity works well. Moving on, let's talk about the subway fight between Spider-Man and Doc Ock. My God. Nearly 20 years later, that scene still has me on the edge of my seat. Whenever they just, they, they get on top of, they're on top of the moving subway train. It's high velocity. They are both like scuttling around the sides, trying to get at each other. They're dodging obstacles. And then, you know, just the, the, the deviousness, the sinister intellect that Doc Ock demonstrates when he's fighting Spider-Man, where he just, he kills the brake on the subway train and then just lets Spider-Man like weaken himself trying to save all of the innocents inside. It's actually a really good strategy because then he'd be able to find Spidey at a weakened point. But it also gives way to that that scene where Spider-Man is putting himself bet literally between the, the train and Calamity at great physical and personal cost and and um, essentially manages to do it, but falls over and uh, very nearly dies because of it. And then moving on directly from that scene... I just want to talk about the scene of the people on the subway who save him, where they they grab him and they pull him in and they they just kind of like set him down inside the subway train. Peter doesn't have his mask by that point. He's lost it. And so the entire time he's trying to rescue the, the train and web it all up and everything, um, he doesn't have his mask on. People can see that they can see him without the mask. They don't necessarily know who he is. But they could certainly describe him, you know, they could, they could describe a young, you know, brunette. Does brunette apply to men? I'm going to assume it does. A young brunette, brown haired, if you want to call him that, white man, uh, with, you know, like it's, it's just kind of one of those like, wow, yeah. Um, but for me, that is a very beautiful scene. The way that they treat him, how tender they are to him. The, the kids that come up to him with his mask and are just like, here, 
we found something. You know, it's good to see you back. Thank you for rescuing us. We won't tell anyone. Like, like I can't tell you how much that scene very nearly moved me to tears just because of how tender it was and how beautifully the people of New York treated Spider-Man at that point. You know, you had that one guy saying, he's just a kid. He's no older than my son. You know, it's it's nice to see because we're, we're used to the people of New York kind of harassing Spider-Man and seeing him as a menace because of J. Jonah Jameson and everything. And it's just kind of nice to see that, you know, that that well treatment of Spider-Man, you know, like he's just done the, he's very clearly just done this very heroic thing. And and so people are very clearly grateful to him. And and so so they protected him at a moment when he really needed protecting, you know, after he had protected them and then was was vulnerable. They they they're like, no, 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 we're, we've got you, you know, and and, and, and again, it, it's hard for me to get over the, the the beauty of that message and the idea that even a superhero needs help sometimes from the very people that he is helping sometimes and you know that that scene exemplifies it in a way that i don't really feel has ever been matched since a spider-man movie i feel like the closest that that it comes is actually in the miles morales spider-man game that's you know there there's a um there's a scene where you know, the people of, I think it's uh, the people of Harlem, they actually put together a Spider-Man costume for Miles. And I think it's called the, like the Harlem Pride costume. I'm I'm not wearing that one, but I do, I do have that as a compression shirt. I'm actually wearing a different compression shirt today, but it does have the same kind of color theme. But anyways, I love that. I love the hero who tries to save the community, like gets a little bit of thank you and 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 some benefit from from that same community that that give and take is is very very nice and and I like that they 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 portray that. I would say that the final scene that I think is very significant from this film is Octavius's final words. I will not die a monster. Wow. I don't think you can get any more different from the Octavius who had been portrayed in the comics up to that point. They've, they've gotten a little bit more, they've given him a little bit more depth since then. But Octavius from the comics kind of was a monster. He didn't care about who he hurt. He didn't care. He cared about being the smartest person in the room. He cared about besting Spider-Man or whichever other superhero was in his way at the time. He was a genius, and he liked to show that off, and he was an arrogant prick. He really was. He was a monster in a lot of ways. And this movie humanizes Octavius in a way that the comics rarely did up to that point. And I I, I still kind of wonder, did Octavius really have to drown with the you know with the fusion reactor like did, did he really have to hold on to that that structure because it looked like it was it, it was sinking to the bottom just fine without him and you can see that his arm is just gripped onto it in like a death grip and not letting go i was just like couldn't he have told it to let go did 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 alfred molina's character have to die at that point and I don't know. I wonder about that, but the sacrifice is very noble and I think does a really good job 
of demonstrating just how different this iteration of Otto Octavius is from the comics up to that point when this movie was made. So with all that said, obviously I have a whole lot of good to say about Spider-Man 2. So where would I rate this on a tier list? I think in the previous episode I had put Spider-Man on the A tier, and I think that it belongs there. It is a great movie. It is a great intro to Spider-Man. There are only a handful of sequels that actually top their previous films, and I am happy to say that Spider-Man 2 did that. It delivered a superhero movie that was heartfelt, action-packed, and just kind of paced wonderfully. It moved wonderfully. It was just a whole lot of fun. And it really kind of, I mean, I, I feel i feel like I kind of left that movie changed just a little bit. I felt like, you know, superhero movies up to that point, they were great and I loved them. But I felt like after watching Spider-Man 2, this, is, this was just like, see, this is what superhero movies could be. They could be great and they can appeal to a mass audience, which Spider-Man 2 very clearly did. And so for that reason, I choose to rank Spider-Man 2 among the very best Spider-Man films ever made. And for me, it can go in no other place than the S tier. It is still, even 20 years later, it's still one of the best Spider-Man movies made to date. And it holds up well, even if the visual effects might seem a little dated. And really, that's the essence of what I have to say about Spider-Man 2. It is a great film. It is a great Spider-Man film. It is a great superhero film. It may not be as great a superhero film as it used to be, but it certainly is up there with the top-tier Spider-Man films. It's a great film just to, to revisit every once in a while. Um, the, the storytelling is wonderful. The direction is wonderful. Sam Raimi, uh, with these first two films, he basically showed how awesome a director he was. Now, I'm going to have some reservations about Spider-Man 3, but I still feel like you'll be surprised at my rating for that one whenever we get to it. But overall, this is a great movie. It's held up well over the years, and as a Spider-Man film, just on its own, it really it is one of those films that a lot of the other Spider-Man movies are trying to hold a candle to. And a few do, but not many of them. Great movie, and uh, one, of the, one of the joys of Spider-Man media that has come out over the years. And with that, I believe we are going to end this segment and move on... If you enjoyed this episode of The Webline, please be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast on my YouTube channel, simply named Spidey Librarian. The Webline is also available on audio services, so when you see us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or another such service, please leave us a review and a rating, and where appropriate, please follow us as well. You can find me on my socials under the name Spidey Librarian on Threads, Instagram, WordPress, and Twitch. Finally, if you'd like to shoot me an email, you can contact me at spideylibrarian at gmail.com, 
where I'll be happy to hear your thoughts, rants, and ideas. You never know, your email just might be featured in an upcoming episode. Be sure to join us live next Sunday on the webline, where we'll be doing another character deep dive. The subject, the iconic, the hard rockin', the ghost spider herself, Gwen Stacy. Thank you for listening, and until the next episode, I'll be wishing you a good day.